power. It shapes our world. What power do we really have? Does it come with incredible wealth or with a position of governance? There is a power that comes from God. A power that enables. A power that changes lives forever. The power of stewardship. We're talking on this series about the power of, and we talked already about the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of prayer, uh, the power of words, the power of hospitality. And today we're going to be looking at the power of stewardship, the big picture, the big picture that all of us ask is, what could be? What could be if we as a church or as church as a whole around the world took the stewardship uh, concept 100% and, and applied it in all areas of our lives? Uh, Jesus talked about stewardship of time, resources, and energy more than he talked about anything else because he knows that there's a competition going on in our lives uh, for the lordship and the lordship of Christ in our lives. And for us as individuals, we're all in the same place, every one of us. Uh, the thing is that you'll think you're the only one wrestling with this, but you're not. We're always wrestling with the issues of the heart concerning our time, our resources, and our energy. But uh, the way I want to introduce this topic this morning is to say to us that uh, we have all inherited an invisible legacy. Every one of us has inherited something uh, either physically or spiritually from those who have gone before us. And I'm not just talking here about inherited wealth that may have come from family, etc., but uh, I'm talking about spiritual well-being and spiritual health. When I look at my own story, and you'll have similar stories to this, when I, was, uh, uh, when I became a Christian, I was standing on the shoulders or inheriting that legacy from those who had gone before me, people I'd never met who had invested in the life of the church where I became a Christian at the Otomotai Baptist Church. And so the people there had sown seeds of faith and used their energy, their time, resources, and I was one of those people who invisibly inherited from that investment that they made. In the same way, when I went to Baptist College, uh, theological college, uh, back in the 90s, same thing there. Other people had invested in that college back in the 20s when it first became established, and then other lecturers came in and that people had invested in them. You see what I'm saying, don't you? We stand on the shoulders at a whole lot of levels of people who have sown invisibly. And uh, look, uh, there's lots of examples around. Um, let me embarrass some people here. The Gilmores, I'll embarrass Bryce and Kate. They're investing uh, as missionaries into the life of our city here, running a backpackers, amongst other things, for international travellers. And there they can introduce them to Jesus, share with them Christian hospitality. Uh, the thing is that for Bryce and Kate, as they say, uh, hi there, say goodbye to these folks as they leave their doors, they never know what they have done planting seeds in people's lives. And so they are leaving an invisible legacy in the lives of others who are going to travel back to their own countries and uh, find that a seed that has been planted, God will use someone else to water it, etc., etc. And there's this ongoing legacy that's being built uh, in spite of us sometimes, but certainly as a result of direct 
and intentional uh, ways in which we live our lives. And so this legacy is so important. Uh, when I was overseas in Europe a couple of years ago, uh, as you do, you go to lots of different castles and cathedrals. This, this particular cathedral is in Leon in Spain. And the, the cathedral is about five or 600 years old. And the reason why I wanted to point it out is because when it was built, there was a village of 5,000 people. And this cathedral took 30 years to build. Okay, so that's a reasonable amount of time. But 5,000 people in the village carried the vision for this cathedral. And I, I look at the size of our church community with what's going on here and, you know, 2,500 people roughly involved with us. And I sort of think to myself, uh, you know, um, it has potential, doesn't it? Uh, it has potential. So what I'm saying here, though, is there was a vision that captured people, 5,000 people, 500 years ago which allowed them to build what has been a legacy, not invisible because this is a physical structure, but certainly the spiritual legacy of what this has done to impact people's lives over centuries is a legacy that would continue on well beyond our lifetimes, of course. And so we ourselves are people who are always leaving this invisible legacy wherever we go. Uh, our stewardship, our resources, our time, our wisdom... Uh, all of these things are what God would invest in you for you to then be used for the sake of other people. Now, this morning, what I'm going to do is uh, focus probably a little bit more on the, the big issues, and that's money. But when we talk about money, we're talking about everything, really, because as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, So we know that with Jesus wrestling with us, with the parables that are used and the stories that are used, he talked more about money and resources than he did anything else. So he knew the spiritual battle was going on inside us in that secret and hidden place. But when I talk about invisible legacies, uh, this is one of the verses that comes to mind. Uh, he told them, Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Through it, though, sorry, though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Now, when this tree was planted, no one would have had any idea what birds would have come, probably didn't really have any idea of the fullness of its maturity, whether it would even reach that. But this is a very, very simple illustration, isn't it, of how it is that we, even as a church, we will do things, and people will come and rest. That's a really beautiful image. Rest in what has been planted. One of the... Um, trusts in the city that's had quite a bit of profile over the last decade is the Acorn Trust. It's run by some folks in our city. And the idea there is that you invest money into that trust and it leaves an ongoing gift for the, for the city or for some of the purposes that you intended uh, in perpetuity. It just keeps on going long after your your lifetime. It's called the Acorn Trust. And it's a very good example of what I'm describing here, particularly in relation to this verse, because that tree will have generations of birds coming and resting in it in the same way that we might look at a church building or a cathedral where people find rest. But it all comes back to a vision that has been released by some people under God's leadership to say, we've got to do something here in our lifetime that leaves a legacy beyond the here and the now. And that is what stewardship is always about. So what I'm going to do this morning 
is talk from scriptures about what, how Jesus interacted with people. And then I'm going to take a uh, little story out of the book of Acts, which is quite compelling to the point of terrifying. And uh, we'll see what it is about stewardship that we can learn together. Jesus is confronted by a young man. It said, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, and you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Well, we leave the story here just for a moment to reflect upon this because this is the part of the story that was essentially in the mind of this young ruler. He figured that the conversation would sort of end about here and Jesus would go, ah, you're doing well, you know, because you haven't done these things, you've honoured your parents, you haven't committed adultery, you haven't committed murder. And so this young ruler, it says he was young, also says he was wealthy, so he is sort of... Uh, you can sort of see his temperament. You can see his character here. He was looking for affirmation. He was probably one of these guys who was quite proud of himself because here he is seeking that affirmation from Jesus. Uh, he's sort of a little bit like a, you know, the average 18 or 19-year-old teenager who knows everything and should leave home while they do. Um, this guy would be in that category. okay? And so he's feeling quite proud of himself. All these things I have kept the young man, what do I still lack? And he was probably waiting for Jesus to go, ah, you're doing great, mate. You're doing real good. No, nothing. You're fine. And uh, yet Jesus let him have it right between the eyes. He said, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus turned to his disciples Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you notice in that top line there, it says, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. This guy isn't being told to sell everything. But what Jesus has done is he's tapped right into his secret life. Okay? All the things that had happened before, had been mentioned before about uh, adultery and murder and honoring your parents, all of these things are outward displays of a righteous life. And they are rewarded in their own way by people affirming you as a good citizen, as a good son, as a good husband, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these things have their reward. But when you enter into that secret life, it's a very, very different scenario, isn't it? Because when you go and sell your possessions and you give to the poor, there's no one writing up your story in the newspaper. The poor are not celebrated for their stories. And so you're entering into a secret life where it's really between you and God. And this is where Jesus challenges this, this young man. He's saying, look, yeah, you've done okay, but let's deal with the issues of the heart here because this is where it really matters. This is what really counts. Because if I can get that heart of yours working in the right way, uh, your whole life is going to be completely different. Okay? So that sounds simple. We understand it but it doesn't take the challenge away, does it? Andy Stanley, who's a great teacher, a great uh, communicator, talks about uh, this circle, the circle of our possessions, okay? And he talks about the circle being closed 
or open. When you close the circle, you have concluded that you have enough. Enough is enough. Enough of this lifestyle, enough of uh, this home, enough of this vehicle, etc., etc. And once you've determined that you have enough, your whole world will change. Because what you will do with what you have after that, you feel comfortable about using it for God's purposes. The biggest challenge is that we live in a world where the 10th commandment is violated every second, thou shalt not covet. And the problem with this is that our whole world is driven by commercials, by media, telling you that you're entitled. And so it's very, very difficult to close that circle. You know, I could have closed the circle on my Morris 1300 back in 1975, but, um, you know, they came out with something better. So I opened the circle again. Now, I'm not saying a Mori 1300 would have lasted this long, but you know what I'm saying. And so we are here talking again about the heart. We're talking about the heart because the heart is deceitful above all things. And it's that issue about being deceitful that is the biggest problem. Because we can convince ourselves of all of these things that we are entitled to and miss the boat of what God is actually calling us to do, which is far greater and of greater value than anything we would do for ourselves. Um, I don't know about you guys, but um, my wife's picked me up in recent times. She says, oh, uh, when, you, when you're tired, Craig, you sort of blob out on trade me. I know. Has anybody else ever done that? Okay, good on you, men. Okay, it's trade me in one hand and the remote in the other. Is that right? Is that what it looks like at home? Okay. So the thing about this is that I, I might go on to trade me vehicles and I'll go, huh, what's my car worth? So, yeah, that car, oh, yeah, that's worth that, okay. What if I sold that? I might be able to find something else, you know? And then I'll say to Michaela, Michaela, do you want a Mercedes? Because you know, I'm trying to justify my own temptations here. And she'll go, no, Craig, I don't want a Mercedes. I'm like, oh, stink, her circle's closed, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, so, but these are some of the things that we might do where we will just play around with the temptation of what life could look like, you know, and then if you've, you know, you can just rearrange your, your finances a little bit, release a bit of money to do this and to do that. We're always in that game of being tempted, but closing that circle is really, really the critical conversation that you've got to have around your table because otherwise we will perpetually keep it open and we will perpetually consume in ways that might not necessarily be what God wants. I'm not saying consuming is evil. I'm not saying having a house is evil. I'm not saying having money is evil. Don't get me wrong. It's how we handle our resources. How do we live with this issue in that secret life? That's what I'm describing. And so let's just keep this in mind about this question of the secret life, and we'll have a look at some frightening scriptures. Now, a man named Ananias, <laughs> you know where I'm heading now. <laughs> Uh-oh. Together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. This is in the early days of the church. The church was literally less than a year old. Okay, With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it in the, at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. 
Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. Pretty simple story, really, isn't it? Okay. But the issue here is not that he sold his land. It's not even about the amount of money that he gave to the apostles to distribute. It was the, the fact is he was trying to live in two worlds. He wanted to keep some of this money for himself, but he wanted the celebration or the acclaim for giving the total value of that land to the apostles. Okay, So he was trying to get credit for something that he hadn't done. And this is where the issue is here, is that his secret life is being revealed right in front of him here. And, uh, and, and somehow, we can assume by God's revelation to Peter, or maybe he just knew the story, I don't know, but he challenged Ananias on the value of the property, not that the value was a problem, but he said he sold it for less, and they kept back some of the money for themselves. And that's when he was struck dead by lying before God. So it was his secret life that was revealed in this. And you go, well, that's, that's pretty tough for Mr. Ananias, but Mrs. Ananias turned up a few hours later. Her name was Sapphira. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. No cell phones in those days. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband, because they were the, the deacons for dead people. <laughs> you sort of get this feeling that this is happening regularly, you know? It's like, oh, here's another one. I dropped dead. Okay, let's go. Okay, we're good stewards here. Um, clearly, the, they'd conspired to try to make themselves look better. That was the issue going on here. It was the secret life. They could have given 10 bucks. It wouldn't have made any difference to God, as long as they were honest about it. Okay, but it's the issues of the heart that were being challenged here. So let's move the conversation to the stuff that we always end up talking about, and everybody wants to know what the answers are, particularly my answers. All right. What about tithing? Okay. What do we do with tithing? Now, tithing is um, something that's been in Scripture for thousands of years. We find right the very early part of Scripture, the patriarchs, they introduced tithing when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. He's sort of this, sort of this mystical figure who operated like in a priestly fashion back in the early days of, uh, of Abraham's story. So we see tithing, and tithing's 10%. You can't tithe 1%. By definition, that doesn't work. Tithing is 10%. And so here we are in the Old Testament before Jesus, and the law that was provided in the Old Testament helped define the culture by saying, here are the rules by which you live. And so um, they were pretty simple to understand, not always simple to carry out, but certainly with money, it was an easy thing to do. You just took 10%, you took it to the temple, put it in the treasury, left it there. Uh, same with the crops that you might have had. These were taken into the temple, and therefore that, that, that food was distributed amongst those in need. And so this was an easy, easy method of honouring God. It's an act of worship. Um, however, we are living in New Testament times, and so therefore we aren't obligated to the law. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't that you're allowed to murder someone. You know, okay, this, we haven't gone that far yet. 
But let me give you this. Paul was speaking to the church in Galatia saying this. He said, the law, that's the Old Testament law, was our guardian, our teacher. Okay, and if Your Bible might say teacher. A teacher until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now, what this means is that under the law, we're essentially told what to do. Now, when I was uh, uh, year nine at secondary school, third form, we needed teachers to tell us what to do. If the teachers left the classroom, all hell broke loose, you know? Uh, I can remember being disciplined because um, I was the origin of evil in the classroom on one particular occasion. But by the time I got to the end of my secondary school years, the teachers could leave us, they could walk in and out, do what they want, and they, we'd grown up, that's all I'm trying to say. You know, so we weren't causing too many problems. So with this scripture, essentially what Paul is saying is this, is that under the Old Testament law, we had a guardian, we had a teacher who told us what to do. Now that we've moved into a scenario where we're, we're saved by faith in Christ, not saved by keeping all of these laws, we are now asking the question, what do we do with this law of tithing? Well, before we go there, I, want to, I just want to show you some words written by Martin Luther, the great reformer 500 years ago, when he commentated on this verse. And it's a fascinating little description because um, it, it just is so politically incorrect now. It's, it's mind-blowing. But here's what he said. How can a pupil love a teacher who frustrates his desires. And if the pupil disobeys, the schoolmaster whips him. And the pupil has to like it and even kiss the rod with which he was beaten. You see that? Do you think the schoolboy feels good about it? As soon as the teacher turns his back, the pupil breaks the rod and throws it into the fire. And if he was stronger than the teacher, he would not take the beatings but beat up the teacher. All the same, teachers are indispensable Otherwise, the children would grow up without discipline, instruction, and training. But how long are the scolding and the whippings of the schoolmaster to continue? Only for a time, until the boy has been trained to be worthy heir of his father. No father wants his son to be whipped all the time. The discipline is to last until the boy has been trained to be his father's worthy successor. Now, I thought it was fascinating, a little insight into uh, school discipline <laughs> at one level. Um, but it does illustrate the point of what I'm trying to say here today and what Paul was saying, is that there was a, a discipline tied to the Old Testament law. You kept the law whether you liked it or not. And in doing so, you were then ultimately shifted and changed to the point where you did it willingly. It didn't mean that you enjoyed it, but you did it willingly. Okay. And this is where this living by faith actually changed the whole dynamics because in the middle of all of this, God is wanting us to have our heart revealed to us. So we end up in a situation like this where in New Testament life, 90% is greater than 100%. Because this 90% that we live on, I'm not talking about what we give it away, I'm talking about what we live on, we choose to live on this as Christians because we can honor God with the difference, that 10%. And this is where faith kicks in. Faith kicks in because we're saying to God, 
I'm trusting that you will take what it is that I've given you and build that invisible legacy. That's our partnership with God. But the 90% that is blessed is actually significant of, uh, because it's all about our relationship with God. So I've got a partnership with God which says whenever I'm struggling financially, long as my needs are you know, worked through and they're in that circle, not just continue to expand out of a sense of entitlement, I can go to God and say, God, we have a problem here. Not me, we, because I've made a covenant relationship with you about this, this money that uh, we need to use to keep the things turning in our family. But Corinthians, Paul once again speaks about giving in a, in, a, in a way that leads us to the very, very heart of the situation. He says this, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now this is really defining, isn't it? Why? Because again, we're looking at the condition of the heart. The condition of the heart is really, really important. So let's, let's see how this works out. Law, the Old Testament, said 10%. Now, let me ask somebody who's a law keeper how you feel about that. How do you feel about giving 10%? Well, I don't know. It's not about feelings, is it? I just got to do what I got to do because it's the law. It's like asking somebody, how do you feel about keeping your, your, your car under 100 kilometres an hour on the open highway? Well, it's not about how I feel. It's just something I've got to do. So you have no real revelation of how you feel about giving 10% of your income if you're living under law. So move into the New Testament. We're now being told that you've got to be a cheerful giver. Oh, so my feelings come into this? Yep, because this is all about the heart. It always has been about the heart. God wants the heart. Once he's got the heart, everything else follows. Oh, okay. Well, I don't like the idea of giving 10%. Oh, what would you like to give then? 5%? Mm. Two? Oh, yeah, I'm happy with two. So you could be joyful at two. Okay, that's good. How do you feel about being joyful at two? Does that reveal something to you about your heart that you didn't know before? Yep. I didn't know that my heart was so miserable. See, you wouldn't have known that under the Old Testament law. You wouldn't have known that. And yet the Old Testament law is still a guide. It's still a teacher to us. But in this process of learning about generosity, we learn about ourselves. And that's the critical element in this relationship we have with God, is that we are told not only should we be generous, but we should be joyful and generous. And we learn so much about ourselves. And if we find that our heart of generosity barely beats at all, um, it's got such low blood pressure, hardly generates anything, we've got to then take that seriously and go back to God and say, God, I've got a problem here. Because I can't even keep up with what the law demanded because my heart is now being revealed for what it is. So just like I might be struggling with forgiveness and I've got to go to God and say, God, in my own strength, I can't forgive this situation. 
Same it is with your money. You go back to God and you say, for the first time, I actually know what it is that's going on here. And Lord, I'm not very happy about this. So I've got to have a process by which you speak to me. We do some uh, hard yards on here in here. And I work out what it is that's going on in my heart. Why am I struggling with this? Is it a lack of faith or is it fear? What's going on? And so the question that you're left with when you live under a new covenant, grace-filled relationship with Jesus is the question is about the joy that you give in partnering with God to leave a legacy, an invisible legacy, in the years ahead. Because ultimately, that's what we invest in. That's what giving is all about. It's not giving to get. It's not giving to get rich. It's giving so that we can create an invisible legacy that other people are going to be able to step into in the years ahead and be blessed because we were here. There are hundreds and thousands and millions, I suspect, people who have given invisible legacies over the years out of their faithfulness and their generosity. We'll never know their names. But just like I mentioned with Bryce and Kate investing in these overseas travellers, you know, we will know in time, I think it's quite exciting, of how all of this outworks itself. I'd like to think in eternity we sort of get to look behind the curtain a bit. It'll be fun. But I suppose for myself, with this big picture of stewardship and the power of it, as I ask myself the question and I allow my imagination to run wild of what could be. And I'm sure that's the way God looks at his church, it's his bride. And we go, what could be? What could be as we all work together using our, our gifts, our strengths, our resources, our time, our passions, and bring all that together? Imagine what our city would look like. Imagine how our country would operate. Imagine how the world would work. It's entirely different to the way it works now because God's people are acting in a way that is generous and are intentional about leaving an invisible legacy rather than building a visible one of their own that you can't take with you when you go. One of the things I just want to say about this giving thing is that I've been pastor here for 24 years uh, nearly 24 years, a couple of months off it. And um, right from the outset of being here, I made it really clear that I never wanted to know what people gave. It's really intentional for me. Uh, I, don't, I don't sign checks. I don't have a credit card. No one trusts me. You can see what's going on here, don't you? I've just woken up to it, yeah. Uh, and I, I never see the bank accounts, you know, if people are giving by direct credit, I never see those bank statements. They get handed straight to the treasurer. Um, I never see tithing receipts. And why don't I want to know that? You think, surely, Craig, it's your responsibility. And I've read plenty of books that suggest you should. You know, Monday morning, what I should be doing is finding out who gave the biggest check on a Sunday, and I should be writing personal thank you cards to that person. That's too much for me. And as much as I couldn't handle that, you know, if somebody who was the biggest giver in the church rung me at three in the morning and said the budgie died, I'd say, oh, that lovely blessed Baptist budgie, I'll be around there as soon as I can to give it a blessed Baptist funeral. And my wife will come around and make you a cup of tea and massage your shoulders. We'll be there. God bless you. You see, I understand my own heart. I, I'm just really grateful that 
this transaction happens between you and God, not, not you and me. I, I just, I, I, wouldn't be, I couldn't be responsible for the, uh, the things that would go through my head if I knew what was going on. Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd look at some people and go, eee, misery guts, you know? <laughs> and others I'd go, have this seat, you know, let me get you a cup of coffee. Why? Because I'm too human. My heart's deceitfully wicked above all things. So ignorance is bliss, totally. And so I just wanted to, to tell you that because it's really important to me that the end result of this, everything I've spoken about today, is about you understanding that secret place in your heart about your resources, your finances, and how it works out between you and God is your business between you and God. The church is part of the bigger transaction, and that's, that's cool. We, we take significant amount of responsibility for the way that we handle the finances here in the church. You know, we've got all sorts of systems to protect ourselves from ourselves. And, and that's just so vital for all of us. So, uh, so I want to finish there, but I'd like you to stand and we'll pray. Thank you. God, we talk about the power of stewardship. We, we live within it. All the things that we've learned that have been passed down from generation to generation, the buildings that we have, the investments that have been made, all of these things are the invisible legacy of people who have gone before us, your people, our ancestors at a spiritual level. And we thank you for them, Lord, because uh, without them, we wouldn't be who we are today. And yet, Lord, we feel that, that, that call, not the pressure, but the call to be able to partner with you in what it is that we see around us and how that we can create a legacy that's just going to ripple throughout generations. Help us capture the size of the vision that you have for what this looks like and how these mustard seeds can grow into wonderful trees where the birds of the air come and find their rest. Wow, that's a, just such a great picture. And so, Lord, we, we come to you and we, we just want to offer our hearts to you for you to do the surgery that's needed and to help us to come to grips with what it is that you're calling us to, where we might need to change and how we would need to change. All of these things are, are really critical to our, our walk with you, Lord, because they're the secret places of our hearts that you, you want to work with. And so we thank you, Lord, that as we open Scripture, we find that you deal with these things. Why? Because you know us. You know what our temptations are. You know what our entitlements feel like for us. And so for that, Lord, we offer our lives afresh to you today. And we ask it for your glory. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks, Darren.